Welcome. I'm Gretchen Keith-Steidel, and this is Synergo's Cultivate the Soul podcast, stories of purpose-driven philanthropy from around the world. Over this 10-part series, we explore together the intersection of contemplative practice, spirituality, philanthropy, and social impact. Join us as we dive into the personal journey of each guest and what they have discovered about the role of inner work on one's capacity to change the world. To learn more about each of our guests and view our full episode list, please visit synergos.org slash podcast. Hi, I'm Peggy Delaney, chair and founder of Synergos. One way I cultivate the soul is to step outside. The closer to the natural environment, the better. And I take a deep breath. I listen to the birds. I breathe the air and smell whatever the scent of that particular piece is. Today we're joined by Peggy Delaney founder and chair of Synergos, a global organization helping solve complex issues around the world by advancing bridging leadership, which builds trust and collective action. Peggy is also co-founder of the Synergos Global Philanthropist Circle and has served on dozens of boards. She also runs an ecotourism company in Namibia and a grass-fed beef and guest ranch in Montana where she hosts wilderness and spiritual retreats for leaders from around the globe. Peggy's full bio is available on our podcast website. As you listen to Peggy, you'll discover how personal vulnerability is key to the way extraordinary leaders are creating bridges to solve some of the world's most intractable problems. Peggy, I'm really excited to be able to speak with you today about something I know we both are deeply passionate about, this intersection of inner work and social change. I'm wondering if you could start from the beginning, telling us a story from your childhood that can help us understand your earliest relationship to money and philanthropy and how you first learned the value or the power of money as a child. I would say that it started around the dining room table that my parents were both very aware of us being a family of privilege and that there was therefore a responsibility to be involved. They didn't talk about money right away, but it was always a question of how you treat other people, which in my view is one of the aspects of philanthropy. And then gradually as I started to get an allowance we were expected to give back part of our allowance as a very young child that was to the church um, on Sundays. But later on, we were encouraged to find our own passions. And as we began to have more money that was actually our own rather than through allowance, it was natural to look for the kinds of causes that I cared about and Mm -hmm. to figure out how to provide money as well as, I always talk about this, um, connections, influence, which I didn't have much of when I was young, uh, or any skills that I might have in addition to the money. So it's always been important to me that it's not just about the money. 
Can you tell us when you found your purpose, what it is, how you discovered it? I think there were two pieces to that. One was that when I was in college and graduate school, I always gravitated toward multidisciplinary or cross-disciplinary courses. Anthropology or economics, they were never enough in themselves. And as I was a graduate student, I wrote a paper called Making Connections, the Case for an Integrated Approach to Human Problems. And that really grounded me in the sense that I, I realized that we needed to bring ideas as well as people together. So that was phase one, which probably was the beginnings of Synergos, even though Synergos was still 15 years away. The second was on the very first uh, purpose retreat that I participated in, we were asked to spend three days alone fasting in the wilderness and to allow to bubble up from our meditations uh, what our purpose was. And what came up was very mysterious to me at the time, but it, it was essentially, I want to create the safe spaces within which people can connect deeply with both their masculine and feminine sides to bring their full selves out into the world. Can you say more about that? Yeah, because at the time it was pretty confusing to me, actually. <laughs> and it turned out that those retreats, which at those times I was participating in, I saw myself evolve, but I also saw the other people who were participants work through some of the inner issues that were keeping them, I'll say, small, limiting them to try to stay safe. And I began to see that as we unearth what those, I'll call them traumas, are, and face them and release them through a series of kinds of exercises or movements or breathing or meditation or prayer, that then there's less static between us and whoever it is that we're interacting with. Mm -hmm. And that process I saw in myself and I've seen in so many of the other people who've been part of these retreats leads to the kind of curiosity and gratitude and compassion and connectedness that enables a true serving with love. Mm. That's beautiful. And it makes sense. I, I read that You've mentioned that one of the most important shifts that are needed to bring our best selves to the world starts with feeling safe enough to feel vulnerable. Otherwise, we're wearing masks to keep ourselves safe. Correct. And so I'm, I'm wondering if you can tell us more about when you made that shift from mask wearing to real vulnerability and authenticity. Well, I can give an example of when I think I recognized that that was happening. And it was, again, in the very first retreat where the guides had set a very safe context. And all of a sudden, I just found myself crying and crying and crying and crying. And I didn't even know why. And one of the guides said, that's because you have such a big heart. 
And whether that was true or not, it was very reassuring. And it was very vulnerable for me to, first of all, be crying and then say, I don't know why I'm crying. But getting that kind of acknowledgement made me feel, oh, so it's okay. And from then on, I felt quite okay. But looking back, I realized that getting that kind of reassurance that to express myself freely, even if I didn't understand why I was expressing it, was okay. And that progressively led to the sense that expressing one's true feelings is okay and actually mm -hmm. people appreciate it and they right. feel safer because they see that this is the real you. Mm -hmm. But it's hard. It's hard to be vulnerable. It is hard. It's a challenge. And I think it's harder for men than women by and large. And in some ways, I think the more pain one has stuffed up inside, the harder it is in the beginning to release it because the feeling is that it might be infinite. Right. That makes sense. Now, by the time you stepped foot into this retreat, this sounds like it wasn't the first time that you had meditated or done some personal practices. Where did you discover or start with your personal transformation journey? Mm. Well, I moved to Montana in 1997. I often say unbeknownst to me because it was yeah. kind of an impulse. And I was living in a very tiny cabin. I was beginning to work on a book. And every day I was spending between two and five hours outside in the wilderness, whether walking wow. or herding cattle or in the winter cross-country skiing. And I reconnected with the kind of joy and awe that I had felt as a child, but not identified as spiritual. There was mm -hmm. something about the natural world that I suddenly again realized that I'm part of it. I'm not separate from it. And that really was the very beginning. And then I did a meditation retreat for a week, which was very scary, but <laughs> allowed me to to calm down some of the chronic anxiety that I live with and and be able to come back to that more centered place and reconnect when my anxiety would cause me to disconnect. Mm. Now, you, you also shared as part of your personal journey that one of the most valuable things for you to do was to go and live at a different level of society or in a different society than what you had grown up knowing. And so it sounds like both the, the deep inner work, but also this connection to others was critically transformative for you. Can you tell us more about what you experienced and learned about yourself through that exposure? Yes. And I'm so glad you asked that question because the two are very connected and yet it would be easy to imagine that they're completely separate. So when I was between 17 and 21, I spent a fair amount of time in Brazil, and part of that time was living in a favela or squatter settlement of people who'd migrated from very poor rural areas to these very poor urban areas. And 
first of all, Brazilian society was so great in the sense of people being open and warm and welcoming so that I, as a kind of insecure adolescent, felt very <laughs> a sense of belonging. Nice. But but secondly, observing, and I, in those days I was working with an anthropologist, observing and, and talking with people about their own lives and where they had come from and what they'd struggled to overcome and what were the challenges, I realized that the challenges were not within themselves. That is to say, they had taken this huge experience of migrating to a completely new place. It was courageous. They were working so hard to make ends meet, but there were no, there was no access to services, to information, to education. And that was where the making connections piece really took hold for me. And making connections vertically across different economic levels and sectorally so that the people trying to solve problems were including the fact that those with the problems had the greatest will and desire to solve their own problems. They just right. needed connections. So the notion of deep listening and respectful listening and then building in the expressed needs to whatever the sources of power were, whether it was corporate giving or personal philanthropy or government services. That was where the idea of partnership and collaboration, but inclusive partnership came to me. Mm -hmm. It sounds like in addition to some of the writing and research work that you did in your early education, this sounds like the seeds for what would feed into your vision for bridging leadership and what Synergos would become. Can you first speak about your theory of how the inner work matters for creating greater social impact? And then I'd like to talk more about how you're actually living that in the world through the work that you're doing. So what I realized first from myself, but then talking with other people, whether activists or philanthropists or business people or whoever, was that if we're too distracted by what's going on inside, we can't be fully present to what it is we're trying to do outside. And then, as I mentioned, through my participation in a number of these retreats, I began to realize that the more we can understand what it is that's holding us back from being our most whole and loving selves, the more we can deal with those things and then come out into the world as our most whole and loving self. So when we began to work in, in a partnership in India in about 2003, we realized that it wasn't just thinking of the solutions. It was a combination of the group that had come together to try to figure out what the right solutions would be, going through a process of creating a safe container within which these people who were from different sectors and levels of society, who were looking at the problem from very different perspectives, could come to trust each other. And through that trust and feeling of safety among themselves, 
Then they were able to go out into the field, this was in the state of Maharashtra, working on the issue of child malnutrition, and spend a week in small groups of five or six people, seeing the best examples of solutions and the worst examples of the problem, and each night talk about what they had seen. And increasingly, by the end of the week, they were looking through the same lenses. Mm. So it was partly the trust-building on an interpersonal level, but then it was partly the coming together to see the problems together. Mm-hmm. And finally, then they went away on one of these retreats for a week, and they went off by themselves for three days, fasting, the same as we do in the retreats here, again, reflecting on their purpose in life, stepping back from the problem at hand. By that time, they were so bonded together that they had dreams the same night. And when they came back together, they were so happy to see each other. They'd been praying for each other the whole time that it created this amazing energy field from which they could be at their most creative in coming up with the prototype activities that they thought would be the most effective in what they were trying to do, which was reduce severe child malnutrition. And what happened? What happened was that over the seven years, and after UNICEF did an evaluation, the reduction in child severe malnutrition stunting went from 39 to 23% in a state of 100 million people, despite the fact that the program had ended, people had changed jobs, moved to different parts of the state, and the only explanation we could find for why it had had such an impact despite these issues was the trust that they had built among them kept them connected no matter where they went to what position. And they, as the beneficiaries of that trust building and that experience, were able to bring in others into it. So even though it only took place in five districts of the province, of the state, it actually, the results were from the entire state. Amazing. So it started with the trust building, the ability to become vulnerable with each other in a safe space, as you described. How, and I understand you've led a number of these kinds of retreats. Where do you start? How do you start breaking down those barriers with people? Well, I have to say that, first of all, we select people because Mm -hmm. not everybody is ready to do this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So the people who were selecting the 30 people in the India case did two to four hour interviews with people as a method of selecting them. Now, that's a little different from the personal retreats that we do in Montana or elsewhere because there, since there's not an obligation to work together on one thing, we can be a bit more flexible in who we accept so that if people express a genuine desire, we will take them in. But it does help if they're ready to take that risk. So there's the part leading up to joining the retreat. And then when people gather, I think the role of the guides is pretty important. The guides have been in touch with them ahead of time. Sometimes we know them ahead of time. Sometimes we don't. Sometimes they've been referred by other people who've been through the retreats. So there's already a slight predisposition to be excited and not just fearful. 
to be trusting mm. and not just That's mistrusting. Helpful. Yeah. And then when they get together, we gently get them to introduce themselves, not so much by what they do, but by what they're hoping to get out of this. What was the longing that brought them into this? And we do that in a ritualized way of a council, which is a, a ceremony where only one person talks at a time and you pass a talking stick and everybody listens and only the person holding that stick can talk. And that's where the vulnerability starts to show up. Usually in that circle, someone will say something so meaningful to them, whether painful or joyous or afraid, that they'll express feeling, whether through tears or not. And the other people in the group can feel the genuineness of that expression. And after that happens, then as we keep going around the circle, people are better able to bring their own true issues to the table. And that starts to build the vulnerability that starts to lead to trust. Wow. it's It sounds like an extraordinary process and quite a privilege to be able to participate in that kind of a circle. I'm wondering if you also have advice for people, leaders, practitioners, and philanthropists who might not be ready for that level of of a deep dive, but want to begin to get started on any form of inner work to support their capacity to be more of a bridging leader? What, where, where do they start? What could they do? I start with um, thinking about how you want to change. Is there something that you want to get through? And if so, you start to notice what is it that's holding me back? And this can be done on one's own. And then once you notice by whether it's through meditation or a walk in the woods or talking to a friend, once you have a sense of what it is you want to be differently or do differently, then you decide, okay, I want to address this. And then the things after that that I recommend, and here it's useful to develop practices that help you with it. The first one is breathing. If we're tight or anxious or scared or anything like that, we're breathing so shallowly that we're restricting our energy. So there are all kinds of books and videos and meditation practices that can help people begin to learn to breathe in a fuller way, which begins to allow feelings to come out. But I'm getting ahead of myself because after breathing, I would say that moving is the second thing that can help release the stuck energy that's kept us from holding the way we've been holding. What kind of moving? So, well, that's what I was going to say is that it can be anything almost. It can be taking a walk. It can be stretching like yoga or Tai Chi practice. It can be dancing. Mm. It can be hugging. <laughs> anything, anything that will get the body going. And, you know, people who sit at desks all day, and I'm too prone to that myself. We're, right, we're, right. We're constricting our bodies. I try to get up every hour and walk for five minutes if I possibly can just to release that energy. And then the third thing is making sounds. In in my family, you weren't ex allowed to express loud talk or anger or strong feelings. So I have a constriction in my throat. 
that I've had to continually work on. And what is recommended, and you can do this in a car driving by yourself or out in the wilderness or when there's loud music around, making a loud sound. You can also do it through singing or chanting. You can do it with music in the sense of singing along to a song or drumming on a pot if you don't have a drum. How does that help? There's something about the sounds releasing energy that has been stuck. All of the things I'm describing are a way of getting unstuck from whatever the energies are that are keeping us from being our fuller self. And then the last piece is feeling. What did that raise for you? What came up for you? And allowing the feelings to happen rather than stuffing them back in. Right. A chance to reconnect with the heart and find some wisdom in it, I imagine. Peggy, can you tell us a little bit about what Synergos is doing now and your vision for the social impact that you hope to achieve through this really unique approach to leadership? A couple of years ago, we decided that the concept of what we call bridging leadership is at the core of what we do in the sense that first, everything I just described to you about the inner work it takes to be able to listen deeply and mm-hmm. and be compassionate and really focus effectively on the problems that one seeks to address. All of those are in, imbued in what we call bridging leadership. So there's the inner work piece And then there is what we call the systems change piece and understanding the system within which the problem exists. So that's the more head piece. The inner work is maybe the more heart piece. Mm -hmm. And then finally, once you've understood the context and the nature of the problem that you're working on, to form the partnership, whether formal or informal, and the collaboration, which involves the trust building, not just within yourself, but with the group that you're working on. And we define that as inclusive partnership. So what I talked about early on, about those who are affected by problems of poverty, for example, usually being left out of the equation. Right. The kinds of impact that we seek to have is an impact where those who are usually excluded are prime players in the design and implementation of their own solutions. But in this case, unlike what I saw in Brazil when I was very young, you have the government involved, you have philanthropists involved, you have other NGOs, you have businesses involved. So it's gradually building the the understanding of the nature of the problem, Mm -hmm. the inner work of the constituents so that they can approach themselves and each other and the issue in a coherent and compassionate way and bring their full selves to that. And then the designing of what the solution should be. So I'll just say one example, for example, in in Ethiopia, where we've been working on the issue of enabling small producers to produce more including connecting to markets, including working more effectively in the cooperatives, etc. We spent a long time working with the government first 
to ensure that the people in the Ministry of Agriculture were really on board with this approach. And that took a lot of inner work on their part. With the bridging leadership approach, with engaging with, with the all bridging, constituents? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's right. So, well, but except that we, in, in order to even get there, we had to first work with the ministry. And then we went down to the regional cooperatives. And then we went down to the individual cooperatives. And then it became more inclusive. Sometimes there is a power dynamic in which one group holds the power. And Certainly. In order to get to the place where there is a willingness for inclusion, one has to go through the process of both inner work and systemic thinking and then the rationale for inclusive partnership to then be able to bring in the other sectors and the other groups. Do you have any stories of a moment when that aha, that aha moment took shape for a leader, and everything shifted? Two are coming to mind, but I'll only tell you one for the moment. The group, our team in Ethiopia, was working on the nutrition aspect of agriculture and production. And they took a group of government officials to visit villages in the north of Ethiopia, which is very famine-prone. And one of the officials had grown up in the village that they were going to visit. And then he had moved to, I forget if it was the capital or another regional capital. And on hearing the stories of the people from his village, of what they were encountering, he, when it was his turn to speak, he collapsed in tears and said, I had no idea this is what we're working for. This is what we have to resolve. Amazing. Yeah, and of course it was incredibly impactful for the rest of the group too, just to see him go through that. To feel heard, I imagine, by someone who had not only come from that community but had achieved such a, a state of, of leadership within the country. Is Sinergo's teaching this process to others? How does one come to be exposed to it and be part of this kind of a process? Mm -hmm. So two answers to that, and probably more answers will evolve over time because we're in the process of building curriculum and of training people. So eventually there will be a platform on which people can be part of a training process Right now, it's in more specific instances. So we have mm-hmm. a group of young Brazilians uh, who are uh, from business families who've been going through these retreats and are now working to apply what they learned to their own particular passions, sometimes individually and sometimes with the group that they've formed. Uh, the group is, is focusing on issues of sustainability in the Amazon rainforest. So that's one nice. example. The other, yeah, and the other is in Mexico, where we've been working in one state around the issue of poverty and how the different sectors could work together to improve economic opportunities and uh, awareness among government and business and all the groups in the state of what they could do, both to prevent the extreme migration, which also 
is as a result of poverty, but also leaves behind the poorest of the poor. And mm -hmm. as people participate in this multi-part uh, retreat series, they learn about systems thinking and, and they do some of the inner work and they are building a collaborative. So that's what we're doing right now. But at the same time, part of our team is in connection with a number of universities that are interested in including bridging leadership as part of what they have in their course structure. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, and these are universities around the world. So it's going to take, we need to further develop the curriculum that we use. And then with each university, we need to figure out which part of the university does this fit and what's the contract and who will we be affecting. So that's the direction we're moving in terms of making this much more widely applicable and available. With this kind of systemic, comprehensive, holistic work, and it, it takes time at a time when so much of the world wants quick and easy answers. What's what's most frustrating to you about what's most challenging and frustrating in this kind of an approach? And, and how do you work with that? The biggest challenge is how to go to scale. So for a number of years, our actions were more in individual countries where some group in that country had requested for us to help create collaborative action to solve a particular problem. We feel as though that has been successful for the most part, but how can we go beyond that so that there can be bridging leaders around the world who can begin to do this on their own? they can become the facilitator of like processes. So the challenge is to create the platform, to create the training program that will be relevant to whether it's students in universities or people already working, let's say, in an NGO or a training program. What is the vehicle that we can use that will enable people, probably mostly remotely, to become good and effective bridging leaders who are resolving problems in a collaborative and inclusive way. It sounds like an extraordinary undertaking, big, expansive, systemic, and globe-reaching impact. I have to ask, like, what gets you up in the morning? What's a memory, a moment, something that just excites you that fuels you to keep working on this extraordinary vision? I think it's the kind of stories that I either participate in or hear. The stories like the man, I wasn't at this place in northern Ethiopia when that happened, but that impacts me so deeply, and it makes me recognize that this change is possible, and it motivates me, and I have such a great team of colleagues who are all equally passionate about this and working in different parts of the world and all passionate about getting beyond the individual circumstances to supporting others who want to do this work of bridging in their own context around their own problems. Beautiful. Now, one tension I want to ask you about in the philanthropic space is you know, at a time when many in the world are more closely examining 
privilege and, and what is needed to dismantle the systems of inequity. What role can philanthropy play in this whole process when so much of wealth has actually evolved out of inequity and privilege? Yeah. And that, of course, is what many people in the U.S. and elsewhere are struggling with. And some people are trying not to deal with it. So what I would say is that the group of philanthropists that we're connected to are largely there because they really want to do good in the world. And a question, the question is, how can they do the most good? And the most good is going to be connected to getting that ability to listen and clarifying their own passion. And that means interacting beyond their own little group. So one of the things that Synergos does, we will again post-COVID, is to take learning journeys to different parts of the world around the issues that our members are interested in and, and in countries that they're interested in so that they too can see the, the elements of the problem, can converse about that problem with people locally, with leaders of the country, business people, and community leaders so that they begin to get the sense of the importance of bridging across divides to solve whatever the problem is that they're passionate about. It's, again, the issue of inclusion. And you can't right. ram that down people's throats. No, That needs to come from inside. You're creating these experiential opportunities for people to go through where we started in this conversation, this same process that you did of finding purpose listening deeply and connecting and learning uh, to understand how to manifest that purpose. Exactly. What is next for you that you're most excited about right now? Right now, I'm pretty passionate about collecting the learning that 35 years of working with Synergos and many more years before that, dating back to when I was living in Brazil, the learning about the inner work and also about the social impact and trying to put that in another paper that I'm completing that will be available in a few weeks. Fantastic. That's, that's quite an undertaking for what you've had a chance to, to see and do. And so where can people learn more? Find this wisdom and or more about the practices that you have um, experienced and the work that you're doing now? Well, since COVID, Synergos has gone virtual and we have frequent webinars, some of which are open mainly to philanthropists who join our Global Philanthropist Circle, but others which are open to our growing constituents. So I would say to check the Synergos website uh, there are other papers besides my own that are on there. There are video clips, and we are open to the kinds of interactions that you and I have had today through our virtual convenings, um, through people writing us, and we would love to have more people interested in this way of working. 
Thank you so much, Peggy. I'm so grateful for the invitation that you have made for all of us to go deeper in our own work, our own sense of purpose, and the ways that we can collaborate with each other. Well, thank you, Gretchen, and you are an important partner with us in that. So thank you. Thank you, Peggy. It's been an honor. Cultivate the Soul is presented by Synergos, copyright 2021. To learn more, visit Synergos.org and find more episodes at Synergos.org slash podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever the best podcasts are found. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.